Good morning, church. It's a real privilege and honor for me to be able to fill this pulpit in your pastor's absence. Thank you so much for the invitation to come and share with you today. I am really delighted to be with you. Enjoyed the worship service uh, at the first service that you had, and even hearing it a second time, it was just as good the second time as it was the first, and a real blessing. Thank you for letting me be a part of your fellowship today. I want to talk to you very briefly about the ministry of the Christian Action League, the organization that I represent. Uh, and then I'm going to launch into preaching for you. But I must confess I'm a little apprehensive about preaching because of a recent experience that I had. My car had broken down. I'd taken it to the shop. The mechanic was bent over looking at the motor. He raised up with a very disturbed look on his face. And he said to me, Mark, it is really bad and it's going to cost you. I said, please don't tell me that. I'm just a poor Baptist preacher. And do you know what he said to me? He said, I know. I heard you last Sunday. <laughs> I hope you don't feel that way today. After our time together, it is good to be with you. For those of you who don't know, the Christian Action League of North Carolina is a Christian public policy organization currently representing conservative evangelical churches from 17 denominations in the Tar Heel State. Our uniqueness to Southern Baptist, however, is that we were actually birthed by the Baptist State Convention decades ago. And today, the Christian Action League has representatives serving on its advisory board from nearly all 100 counties in North Carolina. We have a full-time presence in the North Carolina General Assembly. If you consider yourself a conservative evangelical Christian, then I am your lobbyist representing your Christian values every day that the General Assembly is in session. We um, represent, or should I say address, uh, some very important issues in our time. Uh, Kevin mentioned some of those earlier uh, in his introduction of me. Uh, issues such as America's Christian heritage, religious liberty issues, biomedical ethics, marriage in the family, substance abuse, gambling, pornography, race relations, sanctity of human life, and the list goes on. One of the Christian Action League's most important ministries, we think, is training, developing, and motivating followers of Jesus Christ to be involved in the political process. You know, Jesus commanded believers to be salt and light. As salt, Christians have a preserving effect, if you will, on culture. They keep the world from becoming completely rotten. And as light... They expose the evils of their day as well as chase away the darkness of life with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of God. The Christian Action League earnestly believes and is committed to its slogan, the only lasting cure for evil and injustice is Christian action. The victories by God's grace that we have won for Christ's sake, in the legislative arena are too many 
for me to mention here in this very short presentation, but certainly none was greater than our success, which was an eight-year process, as a matter of fact, in garnering the three-quarters majority votes needed from the General Assembly in favor of a constitutional amendment to protect marriage as one man and one woman. And then there were our indispensable campaign efforts to get that ballot initiative passed in this state. And as many of you already know, it passed by a 61% to 39% margin. During the last session of the North Carolina General Assembly, the Christian Action League was in the very vanguard of groundbreaking legislation to address human trafficking in our state. Perhaps you weren't aware that North Carolina ranks eighth in the nation for human trafficking. And in the last session, we were also supporters of several positive pro-life measures that passed. We lobbied for tougher regulations regarding drunk driving and alcohol control measures and succeeded. This year, we've been closely monitoring lawsuits on the federal level filed against the state's marriage amendment. We've helped direct a fight in Cleveland County to keep out a planned casino. And we've spearheaded in one passage this year of two very significant religious liberty bills. One that clarifies the rights of students and teachers to express their faith in the public schools. While the other addresses the freedoms that Christian student organizations have on our university campuses. I have a feeling that many of the people in this church believe, as we do, that these causes are righteous causes. And that is why we want you to partner with us. And one of the ways that you can do that simply is by allowing us to put you on our email list. If you have a personal computer, our email will send you free every week a report about the latest and most significant cultural war events that pertain to the state of North Carolina. And many times what we'll do is we'll suggest some action that you can take to make a positive impact for Christ upon our legislators or some other public policy initiative. Furthermore, I want to encourage you to visit our website, which you can find at christianactionleague.org or christianactionleague.net. Our website is like a daily newsletter of statewide concerns. Lastly, let me say that the Christian Action League has an incredible task, and we need your prayers more than anything else. You know, I was a pastor for 20 years before taking this position, which I've had for the last 15 years. And I think most of you will agree with me that any pastor who is worth his salt from time to time will find himself on the hot seat. But in all of my 20-year tenure as a pastor, I never found myself on the hot seat quite like I do today. Because you see, it is incumbent upon me in this position to stand before Senate committees of the North Carolina General Assembly, House committees, to relate one-on-one -on -one with our state's lawmakers and do something that essentially nobody else in those halls of power does uniquely as we do. 
I tell those lawmakers, either privately or otherwise, what God's Word says about the public policy matters that they are considering. And most of the time when I do that, especially if it's in a public venue, I stand all by myself. There's not even another person in the room who will say, Amen, preacher. But there likely will be five or more lobbyists from the radical left who will stand up after me and try to take apart everything that I said, even sometimes try to make a buffoon of me. But by the grace of God, and I underscore by His grace and by His power, over and over again with respect to some of the most critical issues of our time, God has blessed that we would win the day. And I'm convinced that those victories are because people like you know about our ministry. You know what we're doing. You know that we're about representing the kingdom of God in Christ our Lord. And you are praying for us. We couldn't ask you to do anything of greater significance for our ministry. And so we implore you to pray for what we're doing. But let me also ask that you not forget us financially because we cannot do what we do without your contributions. We must have that as well. So thank you for your prayer support, for your financial support, and thank you again for allowing me this brief moment to share with you about a ministry that I am convinced is in many respects strategic to the moral climate of the great state of North Carolina. Now, if I could get you to turn with this poor preacher to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, where we are going to be looking together at verses 15 through 21. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 21. Once again, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 21. May we hear the word of our Lord. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him, that is, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why test me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a denarius. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's.
Let us pray. Our Father, we pray earnestly in light of our own weaknesses that you will take full control of this moment. That it should be fully your own moment. That you, Lord, would be in full control of the speaker and that he would say those things and only those things that please you and are consistent with your word. And that you would give unto this audience, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see with that empowering from above to rightly apply the word of truth. And we thank you that you're willing to do this, and we pray earnestly for thy name's sake that your kingdom would be in advanced in and through us, and all God's people said. I wonder if you've ever forgotten something. The truth of the matter is everybody in this room is familiar in some respects with forgetfulness. Even preachers forget. I am reminded this morning of a story of how one young pastor was talking with an older minister about the challenges that he would face in church life. And one challenge that especially fascinated this young pastor was the wedding ceremony. He had never performed one before and so he listened carefully as an older, more experienced minister outlined for him each step that he was to take. And in conclusion, the wise old minister advised him, now if you ever forget what to say, which preachers at times are prone to do, just quote scripture, it's always appropriate, he said at a wedding. Shortly thereafter, this young pastor had the opportunity to test his newly gained knowledge when a young couple requested that he perform their wedding ceremony. And everything went perfectly according to plan up until that moment in the service when he was to pronounce them husband and wife. And at that point, his mind went completely blank. He could not remember what to say next to save his life. But suddenly the advice of that wise old minister came back to him. Just quote scripture. Quote scripture is always appropriate at a wedding. Unfortunately, the only scripture that came to his mind which he dutifully quoted was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Some of you laugh as though you know what that means. But let me clarify that I did not tell that little funny to disparage the great institution of marriage. Instead, only to point out that memory is something of a mixed blessing, isn't it? Granted, to be able to forget some things and not to have to remember their pain the intensity of some trial or failure, I would say, suggest, is one of the great blessings of life. Nevertheless, there are other matters that we must never, ever forget. Concepts, ideas, lessons of life, experiences 
rift with values that we must always remember. May I suggest to you that America today is in the greatest moral meltdown of its history because the church has seemingly forgotten the real meaning and obligations of its dual citizenship. We are indeed natives of the natural world, inhabitants of a country, but we are also first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And in our text, the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried to entrap him with a loaded question, saying, Jesus, now we know you're an individual who truly serves God and bows to no man. So tell us, is it right to give tribute to Caesar? Of course, the slyness of the inquiry was really to box Jesus in. You see, if our Lord said no, he would be in trouble with the authorities for encouraging tax evasion and even treason against Caesar. If Jesus answered yes, he would likely garner the dismay and disappointment of the people who strongly believed that the Messiah was someone who would deliver them from Roman occupation. So you see, either way that Jesus answered, with either a yes or a no, they expected to make a fool of him. They expected to diminish his credibility. They wanted to make him unpopular. But their devilish scheme backfired. As Jesus outwitted them in his answer. Show me the tribute money, said Jesus. And they brought it to him. They brought him the coin. Who is, whose image is on this coin, he asked them. They answered, Caesar's image. Or, which is to say, the emperor's image. Therefore, replied Jesus, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Now, my friends, as we come to this part of my time of sharing with you today, it is critical that you not miss this next point. In our time, sadly, too many wrongly interpret these words by our Lord by setting up a dichotomy, Essentially arguing that the state has authority over certain things, such as politics, while God has authority over certain things, such as our religious obligations. But actually, Jesus here is speaking from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is really saying, if it is true that you have obligations to the state, to Caesar, which you know you do, how much greater your obligations to God. Yes, the people had a legitimate debt to their government for its many protections and benefits. But that is a far cry from saying, as too many have reason today, 
that the authority of the state is separate and removed in some fashion from the authority of Almighty God. I like the commentary provided by Dr. Joel McDermott on our text. He writes, and I quote, We are all God's coinage. We all belong wholly to God. All men must render to God what is God's. All men, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herods, the masses, even Caesar himself. Caesar has as much obligation to render unto God, bow and submit to God as anyone else. He has as much obligation to love his neighbors and to obey God's laws as everyone else. He is not a God. He is not the source of law and providence. He, like all men, is a man subject to God Almighty's providence and God's law. He has as much obligation to obey In fact, he has a greater obligation to obey because he represents multiple people in a public office. Indeed. And I suggest that Jesus' contemporaries understood his answer in exactly this way. Yes, as citizens of an earthly kingdom, we must render unto the state what rightfully belongs to it. But my brethren, hear me and underscore what I'm saying at this time. We must never forget the state has no right to claim for itself what belongs to God. Nor is it that the state has authority over my taxes. But God has authority over my tithes. It is more than all of what I possess actually belongs to God. Caesar may have his image stamped on a coin, but God has his image stamped on me. And the state may stake its claim here or there. It may claim this for its own or that for its own. But in reality, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I suggest this was not only the understanding of Jesus' contemporaries of what he was actually saying. But it was also the understanding of most of the church throughout church history. In obedience to Christ's directive to preach the gospel of personal salvation unto the whole world teaching the nations whatsoever he had commanded, the church engaged the culture with Christian precept and positively changed the entire planet. It was through the work of Christian churches that hospitals and charitable organizations were first founded Did you realize that such didn't even exist before Jesus Christ and the church? Most of the world's greatest institutions of higher learning were started by Christians for Christian purposes. Literacy and education for the masses, capitalism and free enterprise, representative government, civil liberties. Incidentally, let me tell you something. 
Civil liberties have never existed in any country where Christianity did not go before. Put that in your pipe and smoke at ACLU. The abolition of slavery. The elevation of women and children and the common man. High standards of justice. A high regard for human life. A sexual ethic that not only preserved the human race but saved it from untold heartbreak. The codifying and writing of many of the world's languages. The inspiration of the greatest works of art. And countless changed lives from liabilities to assets for society. These great advances came about not because the church separated its evangelistic endeavors from it, its civic responsibilities, not because it divided politics from spirituality, but because it deemed that everything belonged to God and nothing was exempt from His authority. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day used the coin of Caesar to enrich themselves with the temple taxes and other endeavors. So Jesus says to them, you have to pay back. Yet he qualifies by contending that this is an exceedingly small responsibility in comparison to their duty to render unto God their whole hearts, their entire souls, and every aspect of human living. Fellow believers, I suggest to you that it is this same message that we must proclaim in our own time. In much error, sometimes out of fear, sometimes in outright rebellion, we have separated our theology from civil government. We have segregated holy writ from the body politic. We have treated as isolates our responsibility to proclaim Christ as Savior for the soul from our responsibility to also proclaim that those little babies subject to the abortionist knife belong to Jesus Christ. That the institution of marriage belongs to God. That to educate our children without Christian values or principles is to simply make educated pagans out of them. I am driving home the point without any apology, addressing the great social issues of our time, does nothing actually to hinder our efforts at evangelism as some may claim, but instead it is the springboard for presenting Jesus Christ to the masses. And may God forgive us. Forgive us for limiting the scope of the gospel message. We seem to have forgotten that when man rejected the law of God in Eden, he not only lost the power to govern himself, but he lost the power to rightly govern society. And thus public tyranny and oppression have characterized most of man's existence in the world. Christ's death on the cross, however, liberates the souls of men 
from the greatest slavery of all, the slavery of sin. And it restores our ability to be self-governing and also therefore renews our capacity for just civil government. And although it's true that Christ's ministry was primarily focused on matters that pertain to the heart, we dare not fail to see that much of what Jesus taught was also about the forms of external freedom that are born from the new birth within. In Luke chapter 4 verse 18, when Jesus preached the message that officially hailed the beginning of his ministry, Jesus spoke about liberty for the poor and the captives and those who are oppressed. There's no question from that passage that the social issues of poverty, slavery, tyranny, and various forms of injustice were on Christ's mind at the time. In Jesus' last words, which are stated in the Great Commission, our Lord commends, or should I say commands his followers, to make disciples of all nations. Matthew Henry, the renowned Bible commentator of the 18th century, rightly expounded upon this text saying, the principal intention of this commission is clear. We are to do our utmost to make the nations Christian nations. That is God's plan. And yet today many in the church seem to believe that God doesn't care about such things. And may I say, though it sounds as a strong indictment, nevertheless true. Some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're not any earthly good. Forgetting that Jesus in the model prayer taught us to focus our prayers not on heavenly matters, but upon his kingdom coming on earth. Help me finish it. As it is in heaven. And may I meddle just a little. I know that there's probably someone or several people in this audience today. Who would like to try on me that tired old argument which I've heard so many times that if I had a dime for every time I heard it, I could probably be a rich man. That old argument that says you can't legislate morality. I remember when I was opposing a certain piece of legislation in the North Carolina General Assembly and having some effect. There was a senator who pulled me aside in the hall because he was sponsoring the bill and he was quite frustrated with me and he said to me, Reverend, by the way, that's what everybody calls me in Raleigh, Reverend, when are people like you going to realize that you can't legislate morality? And I have to confess, he rattled my cage for a moment. But when I regained my composure, I looked at him and said, Senator, let me see if I can challenge your thinking. I suggest to you, you can't legislate anything but morality. 
All legislation, I said, is the codification of some moral premise. It is the means by which as a culture we say this is right and this is wrong. And there's such a moral consensus about this being right or this being wrong that we've drawn parameters and we say that we're going to fine you, penalize you, we'll even throw you in jail if you violate those parameters. So I said, Senator, I think the real question is whose morality are we legislating? My friends, let me tell you something. Every single time public policy or legislation is codified, somebody's value system is imposed on every one of us, whether we like it or not. And what's happened in this country, unfortunately, is the church has been so disengaged from the political process that we have created a vacuum that wicked people have filled and they are legislating their morality. Every time a law is codified, a value system is imposed. Don't tell me we're not supposed to be a part of that process. And is it any wonder in that our churches are generally failing and our culture is unquestionably dying? Liberty has never been in greater jeopardy because we are living in an age when the church either doesn't understand the full scope of its call or it's in disobedience to its call. Its impact is the salt of the earth essentially nullified and therefore we become good for nothing but to be trodden under the feet of men. Its impact is the light of the world darkened, leaving a blind society only to be led by the blind. Now I know many will respond to what I'm sharing this morning with either disdain or skepticism. Saying it's, it's not possible. We have separation of church and state in this country. And America, they say, has never been a Christian nation. But I suggest to you that such claims are profoundly in disagreement with evidence to the contrary. It seems that America's founders, who were mostly Christian, understood this inextricable link between the internal liberty provided in Jesus Christ and the external liberties of a free and prosperous people. They never deemed that separation of church and state meant that the state could never acknowledge God. They took it as self-evident that God is the source of all legitimate law whether they were found in the Holy Scriptures or were observable in nature. On the 61st anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. Now, this is a quote not from a railing fundamentalist Baptist preacher, but from... John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. It is a quote that I had never read, actually, until 
about a month ago, Adam said the following. Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Patrick Henry, a firebrand for the American Revolution, the same man who cried out, give me liberty or give me death, also unapologetically proclaimed, I quote, this nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The colonists of this nation, at its inception, rebuffed King George of England, declaring as a slogan, we recognize no sovereign but God no king but King Jesus. I overheard that you're going to Kinston, North Carolina. Formerly, many years ago, known as Kingstown. The colonists were so opposed to the idea of a king that they changed the name from Kingstown to Kinston. North Carolina, because they believed there was to be no king over them but the Lord. And even though he'd become something of a skeptic later in his life, Thomas Jefferson wrote, God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their bases? You see, the people who established our great country obviously understood that we could not afford to forget that liberty is a gift from God and that only where the Spirit of the Lord is can there be a sustainable freedom. They knew that we could not afford to forget that our nation shall remain in bondage to the same extent that it fails to render everything unto God. They recognize that we must always remember that when human institutions infringe upon God's sovereign rights, they are subject to lose their own. My brethren, there's no need for me to expound today upon all of Americans, all of America's many problems. But let it suffice to simply say that we are where we are in many respects. Because God's own emissaries, his own people, had neglected their charge to boldly proclaim the whole counsel of God. And such an approach, mind you, to our national dilemmas may prove to be very costly to those willing to speak out. Just as it was for our Lord who spoke to the sins of his own nation in his own day. Yet I suggest to you that our obedience to God is to trump all other concerns.
I fully believe that God is calling his people to stand up today and to break their silence. Furthermore, I firmly believe that without that concerted voice of biblical and moral authority, loud and clear in our time, our nation is surely doomed to perdition. There is a lengthened quote that I want to share with you in closing today. And I got through the first service without becoming emotional the first time that I've ever read the quote and didn't. Alexis de Tocqueville, who was the famous 19th century French statesman and historian who came to our country in the 1830s, came here to discover the reason for our nation's incredible success. What made us an exceptional nation? And this is what he wrote. His words are incredible tell, incredibly telling. Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. In France... I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other. But in America, I found that they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. There is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. Its influence is most powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation of the earth. Religion in America takes no direct part in the government of society, but it must nevertheless be regarded as the foremost of the political institutions of that country. The Americans combine the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. And may God hasten the day when such words as these would once again be true for our country. When we as a nation consistently remember to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, most certainly, but render unto God what is God's absolutely and without exception? I appreciate your patience with my length of speech. And I ask for your indulgence to tell one final story. There's an interesting scene 
1959 Italian film directed by Roberto Rossellini titled General della Riviera. The movie depicts a scene when during the occupation of Italy, the Nazis rounded up a group of people in a desperate move to crush resistance forces. Hasty actions resulted in several people who were not of the resistance forces being thrown in with the resistance leaders. Because the Nazi officer in charge couldn't distinguish who was a part of the resistance and who wasn't, he ordered everybody killed, including the innocent bystanders. On the morning of the execution, one of the men began to cry, weeping profusely. I'm innocent. I'm innocent, he said. I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. And one of the resistance leaders approached the man and asked, You didn't do anything? The man replied, No, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And the resistance leader spoke again, saying, I don't understand. Our whole way of life was being destroyed. Minds were being warped. Institutions were being subverted, and you didn't do anything? And when the man replied again, I, I didn't do anything, the resistance leader replied, then you deserve exactly what you're getting. Let me ask you a critical question here today. Dear Christian, what have you done? Better still, what are you doing now to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon our culture at a time when our way of life is being destroyed right in front of us? Minds are being warped by doctrines of devils and our nation's institutions are being subverted. Are you in the true spirit of our text? As it's been presented here today, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And if there's any question about your own dereliction of duty and this responsibility today, I urge you to make it right with the Lord. And lastly, perhaps there's someone here today who has never committed his or her life to Christ. Will you surrender to his lordship? Will you confess that you are a sinner before God and in need of Christ's saving power? Will you ask today Christ to save you, make you brand new from within, granting also to you the precious gift of eternal life? Will you make that decision? And will you make it public? To be internally free from sin, its power, and its penalty is to be free indeed. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we pause in this moment asking that 
the work that your spirit began in our hearts at the opening of your word, you will complete. And the seed is cast into the field. And we recognize that only your spirit can give the increase. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would do that even now. Create in us, your people, Lord, a new heart, a greater vision, a broader scope of our mission. And Lord, call to salvation that individual present today who has resisted your spirit. May they resist no more and come to Christ and be born anew. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.